Hello, everyone. This is Volts for October 25th, 2023. What's the deal with district energy? I'm your host, David Roberts. District energy is one of the oldest concepts in all of energy, dating back at least to the ancient Romans. It simply refers to connecting multiple buildings to a common source of heating and cooling. A furnace, heat pump, geothermal well, or what have you, and distributing the heat via water or steam flowing through underground pipes. There are hundreds of district energy systems in operation in every country in the world. Virtually all of the buildings in Iceland, which I visited recently, are heated by district energy systems running on geothermal. However, fossil fuel heat has been so cheap for so long that district energy has never quite become the default. It's just been too easy to stick a natural gas furnace in every new building. There hasn't been much pressure to share heat. But with the climate crisis and the clean energy transition, that is changing. These days, lots of people are looking for cleaner sources of heat and more efficient ways to share it. So district energy is becoming sexy again. Among other things, it's a great way for cities to meet their carbon goals without overburdening their electrical grids. With all that in mind, I contacted Rob Thornton, the head of the International District Energy Association, to chat about the clever new sources district energy systems are drawing on, everything from sewage to deep water lakes, the infrastructure they can integrate with, and the other services they can provide. All right, then, uh, with no further ado, Rob Thornton of the International District Energy Association. Welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me, David. Pleasure to be here. I am super into district heat. (laughs) So uh, I was delighted when you all reached out to me. I've been meaning to do something on it. But I think it's, at least in the U.S., not particularly familiar or well understood to most people, it's relatively rare in the U.S., which we will discuss later. So let's start with a definition. What is district heating? So uh, we call it district energy because it's both heating and cooling in cities, campuses, communities. Essentially, it's a you know a, a central plant that's providing steam, hot water, and or chilled water to an underground thermal piping network to provide heating and cooling to buildings you know, in a city, central business district, campus, airport, hospital, healthcare, etc. So it really is the aggregation of multiple users of heat or cool provided by a central plant. So each individual building doesn't need to dedicate space or equipment, right, to boilers, chillers, etc. So uh, yeah, that's the simple definition. Could not be more simple. It's it's using (laughs) one source, a single source of heating and cooling for multiple buildings, which you think... Seems like an obvious, <laughs> seems like an obvious thing to do. Um, so what, in terms of existing district energy systems in the world, what is that central source typically? Empirically, what's the most common current central source? I'd say at the moment, still natural gas. Just a big boiler. Uh, well, often large boilers, sometimes a gas turbines recovering the heat, making additional electricity. So combined heat and power, mm. but that's shifting, you know, with the energy transition, the appetite for lower carbon solutions, there's a lot of, uh, you know, integration optimization happening 
industrial heat pumps, renewable heating and cooling, a variety of sources. That's the advantage of district energy. You change the central plant and actually the benefits flow to you know multiple, sometimes hundreds, thousands of customers by updating the central plant. Is it safe to say these days that all things being equal, natural gas is probably the cheapest? That's why it's, <laughs> that's why it's the most common? Well, it's it's cheapest. It's cleaner than you know some other solutions. It's dispatchable, available, you know, widely available. And, and it wasn't always that way. You know, district energy started really by the Romans, but then Thomas Edison, I would really characterize as the inventor, back uh, 140 plus years ago, and he discovered he couldn't really just sell electricity. He had to actually sell heat too. Building owners saying, "Oh, I'll buy your power, but what am I going to do with the dynamo in my basement that provides, right. you know, the heating?" And so, uh, you know, Edison realized in order to make a profit at this enterprise, I have to sell both the heat and the power. So while it's not commonplace, in fact, district energy is prevalent. Nine hundred systems in North America, thousands all over the world. Every major city has district energy, from. Paris to New York City, obviously Boston, San Francisco, Denver to Moscow. And, and even recently, though, the shift in the United Arab Emirates all across the Middle East, massive investment in district cooling, mm. as you would expect, right? Air conditioning is the driver there. So the, uh, the industry is growing you know, quite substantially. What does it look like, just as a side thing here, because I think a lot of people run up on this, their intuitions break a little bit when they think about this. If you have a central source of heat... How do you use that to cool buildings? Well, I mean, heat in the form of steam can move equipment, right? So steam, you, you use the pressure to drive a compressor. And in New York City, there's hundreds of buildings that are use steam turbine drive chillers. So they're still making cold water, but they're using steam instead of a motor, Got it. right? Instead of electricity to drive the compressor, they're using steam. You can you also use heat with an absorption machine, and that basically, you know, you use heat to kind of change the chemicals, and you will absorb the heat from water. So there's, it's, I don't want to get all, you know, nerdy and too scientific for you, but it isn't so much heat as much as sort of the optimization of process in a central plant to both make heat and cool and or power. Got it. And for the record, we love scientific and nerdy here. Don't feel like you need to restrain yourself at all. All right. All right. Noted. One of the cool things about these systems, and you alluded to this, is that as they evolve, we're discovering that there's all kinds of things that you can use as that source beyond natural gas, boilers, and turbines. Really, you just need a big source of heat or cool to tap into. And it turns out you know, this is something this podcast returns to over and over again is the sort of, you know, as the energy transition proceeds, right. we're starting to think more about heat. We're starting to think about it more than we used to because it used to, t it just was very, very cheap. Fossil right. fuel heat was just very, very cheap and we didn't, we didn't value it, think about it much or optimize it much or, or worry about yeah. it that much. But yeah. now, you know, we're trying to phase out fossil fuels. So we're thinking a lot more about where is heat? How can we use it, reuse it? Where can we find it? So talk about some of the other clever ways that district energy systems are, where they're finding that heat. Like, uh, for instance, sewage. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So one of our members, Centrio, uh, they own systems in, in multiple uh, communities across North America. 
they're recovering heat out of the wastewater treatment, like the, as you mentioned, the sewer system. So uh, Vancouver has a very similar system. The the I forget the year of the Olympics, but basically the district heating system that was built to support the Olympics in Vancouver, British Columbia, mm. was constructed to provide you know low carbon, reliable heat from the sewer main to the Olympic community, uh, like the the housing campus, which has become False Creek, and it's really been a whole economic development success. So, yeah, you're right. We were talking earlier offline about the oil embargoes, right? The first and second oil crisis that really hit Scandinavia. And they were highly dependent on imported oil. And basically the valve closed and the price, you know, quadrupled overnight. And some of these countries, Norway, uh, Finland, Denmark, they said, well, if you're going to make electricity here, you got to recover the heat. And so they required cities to do heat planning mm. and to develop municipal heat plans. And so they recognized the value of heat, not so much for heat itself, but as a byproduct of making electricity. Let's not throw it away. Let's use it. And so now today, Copenhagen, for instance, 98% of the buildings in Copenhagen are on district heat. They don't have mm. you know, their own boiler and it is both like an environmental as well as an economic strategy. So I'll, I'll come back on that, but I'm not sure if I answered your question. I just what does Copenhagen use as their source? It's just all the different kinds of things you can use as a source that I'm that I'm interested in. So primarily waste heat recovered from electricity generation and waste to energy plants. Mm. In Copenhagen, there's this new asset called Coppenhill, I guess, and it's basically a, a waste incineration plant. They convert you know, they recover all the trash and they use it for heat instead of pushing it to landfill. And now this asset actually also has a public ski hill on it, right? Oh, yes. I'm familiar with this. It's brilliant. And so I think they've really understood the scarcity and the value of using the full kind of hydrocarbon value of energy mm-hmm. instead of throwing 60% of it away, like we have historically done with power plants in the U.S., you know, they're remote, they're dumping heat into the river, the bay. Yeah. And, you know, in Europe, that heat is heating Paris and Copenhagen and Oslo and Stockholm. So it's an infrastructure, you know, opportunity and challenge. This raises another question, which is, you know, electricity, you can transmit very long distances with relatively low losses. Heat, not so. Heat is much more difficult to transport over long distances. How close does the source need to be to the users to make this work? How far out could a power plant be that you're recovering heat from and still get the heat, say, to your village? Is there is there an outer limit? Well, you can move hot water more than 10 miles. In Beijing, they're doing that now. They've moved a lot of the power plants outside of the inner ring eight miles. They're, they're moving the heat. Now, that requires you know very large piping networks underground, but it is technically conceivable. We have typically had district energy in cities, central business districts, because that was where both power and heat were generated at the time. That, then you know, in, the, in the 40s, 50s, power plants got larger. They went from 200 megawatts to you know, 2,000 megawatts, and they moved outside the cities. The probably the range for steam because steam requires it's a gas and it has to maintain under pressure. Right. It's probably a couple of miles where after that it begins to condense. Hot water you can push and pump, you know, tens of miles. But it, it, there is always like an economic real estate question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is a aggregation 
we see district energy, there are 900 systems plus in North America, and mostly clustered around, you know, vertically dense or urban, you know, requirements, or college and university campuses, uh, where, you know, they were formed at the time that the power plant was being built. Uh, uh, like University of Colorado Boulder, the power plant was the initial building for the whole campus, mm-hmm. and it grew from there. One other source I wanted to touch on before we leave the, the question of sources is I'm very fascinated by this one that uses deep lake yes. water, which is super cold, yes. presumably. How does that work? The physics, what, what do they do in there? Yeah. So think of cold like gravity. There's, there's no such thing as cold. It's like the absence of heat. Right. So what, just like you put ice cubes in a glass – they absorb the heat around them. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't bring cold. They take heat. Right. So what happens in Toronto or at Cornell University, you know, at these very deep lakes, the water, as you know, heat rises, right? So the, the surface waters are hot, but the bottom of the lake is generally always cold. And in, in the case of Lake Ontario, 34 degrees F mm-hmm. virtually year round, right? Yeah. So what they do is they pull the water off the bottom of the lake and the pipeline goes out like a straw and they pull it in. And that, that is actually the drinking water source. There's three straws that go out into Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. That's the drinking water for the city, for the municipality. But before they use it at 34 degrees, they actually, they put that water through heat exchangers. So the primary water is on one side of a heat exchanger. The other heat exchangers are connected to a network of underground pipes, supply and return cold water. And they basically, uh, (laughs) I need a graph to do this, but (laughs) so you bring cold into a building, the cold flow is in a coil, like a radiator in your car. Mm -hmm. And the hot air in the building is breathed over that coil and the water warms up and the other side of the coil is colder, right? It's, you know, like the radiator in your car. So what ha- what we're basically doing is taking the heat out of the buildings, putting it in- into a, a return network, and then that's a closed loop on the district cooling side. On the city side, what they do is they pump around like 40 degree water F and the buildings heated up to 54, 55 degrees, sometimes warmer. And that's a continuous like circulation of cold water. And then on the lake side, that warm water, that, that's warming up the water before it goes into the drinking water supply of Toronto. I, this would be more effective if I, <laughs> if I were sharing a diagram. It's very visual. I, I'm probably confusing people more than clarifying. <laughs> no, that's... It's so clever how heat is fungible in some sense, right? You can just sort of trade it from one bit of water to another and like move it around that way. And water is the most brilliant because it has a a specific heat of one. So every like BTU you put in, you can get out. Water really is a remarkable, but you have to keep the water clean. You have to keep, you know, zebra mussels, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just simple, you know, standing water, but uh, that's a chemistry uh, story for another day. So if I'm, you know, I'm looking at a neighborhood and I'm contemplating whether it is suitable for district heat, are there characteristics? Is it just about density? Is that the beginning and the end of the story? Or what, what is it that makes an area or a neighborhood or a campus yeah. suitable for this? There is a economy of scale that, you know, you want to minimize your 
capital investment and optimize the number of customers that are using it, right? It's just, right. It, it, you know, so I think that's self-evident. Uh, there are some rules of thumb, but what we're finding now, particularly in like cities that are working towards like reducing carbon emissions, et cetera, and they're, they're really striving, they're seeing that there's these heat sources or cool sources that are really nearby that have been under recognized, undervalued, mm-hmm. underappreciated. So there is a chicken and egg, right? You know, uh, Cornell getting back to lake water. Cornell, 22 years ago, it took them 10 years of engineering, policy, education to permit the Lake Cayuga, the deep lake water cooling. But the, what they did was they traded an electricity bill, you know, going out to buy electricity to make chill water at their campus for a bond payment. Mm. So they made an investment because they actually had at the time, you know, five or 6 million square feet of buildings that could be connected to a district cooling network. There, there was a district cooling system there, but that today I think is like 20 million square feet, right? The campus has grown. And just recently they connected this massive science building that, where they have the synchrotron mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it's uh, it's like the flux capacitor, right? It's doing, <laughs> it's really an energy dense. So your original question was, what's the scale? What are the rules of thumb? You can draw a radius. You know, part of the question is, well, what's the source of the heater cool? Mm-hmm. How ubiquitous is it? How frequent is it? Is it 87, 60, you know, hours a year? Is it intermittent? Does it vary? And you have to value that. And then you look at well, who the potential customers are in a radius. And what type of customers are they? Is it residential? Is it a commercial office? Is it an event space, like a baseball park or something um, that has 80 games a year? So you have to kind of understand what the market is. So there's a lot of, I think, uh, iteration to it. But you know, generally, if you have about a million square feet within a reasonable proximity and uh, either a low-cost or low-carbon sort of source, it could be a fungible opportunity. Mm-hmm. Is there a smallest scale, like four buildings? Yeah. Uh, I mean, logically, there's no reason four buildings couldn't share a common heat source. But I assume it just becomes uneconomic at some point if you're getting down that small. Well, if you're Amazon – and you own four buildings in downtown Seattle, and you have a data center in one of them. Yes, I wrote about this once. So clever. I love that. There it is, right? That data center is making so much heat year-round, you know, 8760, that it's sufficient to supply the heating for the other three buildings, you know, collectively. So if you have a common ownership, which is what we see on college and university campuses, whether public or private, there's economies of scale. The aggregation really does provide like immediate economic value. But over the term, what we're also seeing in cities, we just did an interview with our Chicago district cooling system, the old post office, you know, this is a massive building right in the loop downtown. Instead of having their rooftop dedicated to condensers and cooling towers, they have a green roof, an urban garden. Mm. The building is 90% occupied because the tenants want to be there. I mean, it's also proximate to the rail. Right. But what happens with district energy is it creates many other value drivers in the real estate other than just the expense of heating or cooling. Right. Well, you're just getting rid of all the heating and cooling infrastructure, and then you have all that space simplifying, right? And then it's like subscribing to a fleet where 50 weeks of the year, you'd rather have a Prius 
But man, those two weeks, you, you want a, a, you know, an SUV. A district energy plant has a segment of capacity that can be responsive to the energy requirements of the community over that full you know, annual cycle and meet their needs and not be over-invested. Logically, this is the exact same benefit you get interconnecting grids, right? It's just the right. same. It's just the less individual infrastructure you have. You don't have to build your own peak, right? Because you have to build your own peak load. Right. And so everybody's being inefficient by building right. more than they need. And if you share, you share. And then you don't have these that excess capacity. Exactly. And not only that, like you don't really need an SUV. I mean, maybe, you know, if you have a pickup truck, maybe you need to move furniture or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's great to have it in your fleet, but really you don't want to make it your day-to-day vehicle. And so you have to tease out those advantages and they vary, but, you know, that's one of the principal, you know, value drivers we're seeing, particularly as cities, you know, are dealing with carbon and densification. It makes total sense to me the case if you are building something new, mm-hmm. a new neighborhood or a new or a new campus, the case for putting district energy beneath it seems self-evident, right? Impeccable, self-evident to right. me, obvious. Yeah. Like obviously you would want to have a shared heat source rather than everyone building their own peak load infrastructure in your tiny little area. But where my mind bumps up is so much is already built. So how big of a challenge is it to go to a place that's already built up, say, using, you know, they've all got nat gas boilers, and you want to shift it over to district heating? How much bigger of a deal is retrofitting versus new build in this? And relatedly, for things that are already built, are there forms of infrastructure in place that could be shanghaied for use in the district energy system. For instance, like say you're a city or you're a neighborhood and you've electrified everything. So you don't need natural gas distribution to your individual boilers anymore. You've got all that piping, all that natural gas piping underground. Can you use that for district energy? So it's just in general retrofitting, how big of a deal is it? In most cities, you know, there's a new build opportunity. And as you mentioned, like the pivot point is when people are facing like a replacement or a renewal or a reinvestment or a, a shift in the use of the space, right? They, mm. Their asset, the chillers are, you know, 25, 30 years old right. and, you know, need renewal or the boilers or, you know, what we're seeing a lot of times heat is driven by carbon uh, accounting now. So cities are imposing measurement, et cetera. So there's that. I don't, I, I want to disabuse you of the notion that, you know, you can, re, you know, use the uh, existing natural gas pipe for heating and cooling because they're very different pressures and temperatures. Hmm. And to move heat, because the temperature differential for heat is probably a, you know, like there's a 50 or 70 degree shift, you, you need a larger volume. So it's probably a larger diameter pipe or two than would be, you know, an existing natural gas line. Now, however, when we built a district cooling system in downtown Cleveland, we found a right-of-way that used to be occupied by the trolley. So it isn't so much the pipe itself as the space now available to replace with another asset. You know, our, our friends in Chicago, they just did a really brilliant webinar with us yesterday. They, they showed how they put district cooling pipes to serve 
you know, the old post office. So it's not for the faint of heart. Really, I don't, I'm not recommending, you know, you go out and get a backhoe and start putting trench. But it can be done. In fact, our cities, I would say most of the growth has been existing buildings connecting and converting over. Interesting. So to do that, to add a building to an existing yeah. district heat, you just have to lay pipe to that building, basically. Assuming that like the main trunks are nearby a block or two, or even right on the doorstep on the sidewalk, and then it's a service lateral, and the size of the pipe is sized to uh, provide the cooling or heating capacity required for either that existing building or what could potentially be built there, right? It's, it's like the footprint. There's actually more to it than that, but back to the, your original premise. So in a city like Dubai or Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. right, which has basically they built Manhattan in a decade. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, all, it's virtually all new build, and all of that new build is on a district cooling network because they didn't want to burden the electric grid with having to make air conditioning with, you know, electric compressors in all these buildings. 70% of the electricity produced in that region is used for air conditioning and growing. You know, obviously, air conditioning is is mission critical, life safety, very important. But district cooling reduces the peak demand by 50% or more and the annual electricity requirement by 30, 40, 50, or more percent. And so there's a like a double win if you're responsible for building the electric grid to have a district cooling, you know, network there. It really reduces the infrastructure, the vault, the transformers, all the wires. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure is very challenging underground for electricity. It occurs to me that as the clean energy transition proceeds, most of it is electrification. So uh, there's going to be a lot of more burden on the grid, especially for these cities that are trying to decarbonize. So this is the sort of rare piece of decarbonization that can ease pressure on the grid rather than adding more to it. Right. Well, I don't know if you saw the IEA report came out last week. They're yes. saying that yeah. it's going to be like 50 million miles of transmission line. And that's like a $5 trillion <laughs> requirement. So I wish it were as simple as electrify everything. I wish it were that simple. You know, some cities are looking at doubling, tripling, quadrupling in order to electrify the buildings that exist in those cities. That's how much infrastructure would need to be put underground. There's no, there, the space is not that readily available. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever seen underground Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's a nightmare. Five stories down. Right. So this is like at least easing some of that pressure. Exactly. So one of our members in Boston, they, they operate the system in Boston and Cambridge. They're electrifying the steam supply so that the buildings that are currently serviced, 250 life science hospitals on district energy right now, mm-hmm. they're putting in an industrial heat pump and uh, electric boilers, not to continuously make the heat with power, but certainly when the power is greener and cleaner to optimize that. Our campuses right now, David, you know, one of the signals that they've often used, whether like a CHP on a Princeton or a Harvard right now, they can make or buy power from the grid. And they do that, you know, right now. 
But they're getting a, not only a price signal, but now they're getting a carbon signal, a 15-minute interval. What is the forecast carbon intensity? Right. And, the, and here's another myth. You know, it's like, well, what's the average mileage of, your, of my car? Well, 30 miles a gallon. You don't always get 30 miles a gallon. I drive my car. I'm in the city. I'm alone. Okay. Like, so it's miles per gallon per person drive. So what campuses are now doing is they're looking to see the marginal it's not the average carbon intensity. It's the marginal intensity of the grid, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the summer months or even the winter months, the carbon intensity of the grid can be two or three times what it is on an average basis. And averages are not always acceptable when you're making economic and environmental decisions. So we've discussed this extensively in, in regard to, you know, big industrials looking for 24-7 Right. clean power. It's like, it's not the average, it's what is the intensity this hour. Right. And also you raise the possibility here that if you've got, you know, a bunch of buildings on a district energy system using warm water that is circulating out from a central source, that central source doesn't have to be running all the time, right? right? It can heat water and then go off, heat water and then go off. So you can heat the water when the electricity is green and might otherwise be curtailed. So effectively, you have a giant battery energy storage batteries yep. system. So say a little bit more about that. Are, are people starting to use these things like batteries? Yes. In fact, our friends in uh, Denmark have uh, installed an electric boiler. I, I probably saw it physically 15 years ago. And, you know, as you know, there are times where all the wind power in that grid exceeds the demand, right? So yeah. if they either have to fluff it or lose it. And so what they decided is, well, let's get paid to take that electricity and we'll convert it into heat and use it the next day, as opposed to trying to store electricity in batteries, which we all love batteries and we couldn't live without them. But at an urban scale and at that level of magnitude, by converting it into its use, you know, you can then harvest it when needed or as a demand. One of our members, Princeton University, is in the process of putting geo-exchange. They've drilled 850 boreholes mm -hmm. already on campus, right? And Ted Bohr, whom you should get as a guest because he's brilliant. He's the energy manager, a lot of brilliant people. But he likens it to having seven Rockefeller centers underground underneath their campus. So... In the summertime, they're going to put the heat into these seven Rockefeller centers. And then in the wintertime, they're going to take them out. So that's not the same diurnal calendar as you're talking about, right? Like converting electricity to heat. That's the much discussed, right. rarely witnessed uh, seasonal uh, energy storage. Right. And, you know, they're not done, but they, and they've really just started commissioning it. And they, they actually have more work to do. But they, they actually have some data from that plant that's showing really promising performance, et cetera. So, well, this is a huge issue up in the north. It is. Northeast or any, anybody with a high peak winter load, right, where, where cooling is sort of the peak load throughout the year that has this seasonal storage problem. But if you can store heat in this endless acres of water right. <laughs> beneath every, every one of your dense urban centers, that's a lot of energy to store way out of scale with what you could probably get out of batteries, at least currently. Right. I started my career in 1987 with the Hartford Steam Company, and uh, that was the first downtown district cooling system commercially built in the, you know, in 1962 began operating. 
we use the Connecticut River as the, our condenser, right? So all mm. the heat was rejected in the river. And we invested in a plate and frame heat exchanger because once the river temperature reached 45 degrees, kind of ha- usually happened around Thanksgiving, it's a little later now, but around Thanksgiving, then we would basically just turn on a pump and use that to provide, you know, instead of 25,000 tons at peak in the summer, like 5,000 ton peak, you know, uh, uh, a winter load, but constant for the data centers, you know, insurance. And that had a, like a seven-month simple payback, that investment. Mm-hmm. That's just 25 years ago, David, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I guess my point is that these sources – now, I mean, the Seine River in Paris is the source of cooling for the Louvre and a lot of downtown Paris, right? So when we start to think about energy, it's important that we think about not just electricity but thermal energy. And when you start to – like really kind of understand heating and cooling is 50% or more of the energy appetite of a city, then you think, wow, you know, there's more protein here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the really cool thing, the really new thing to me, which is opening up all sorts of fascinating frontiers, which is keeping this podcast busy and keeping energy people busy, <laughs> is the is the growing um, overlap, the interplay between mm-hmm. the electricity system in the thermal system, right? They were right. largely separate up till now, but they're starting to interact in super fascinating ways. And this is, like I said, we just, there's a lot of this, just people didn't have occasion to worry about it much up until now. But all of a sudden, like all our cheap fossil fuel option is going away. And all of a sudden people are thinking about economizing between electricity and heat. And they're just, there's just clever ways to do it all over the place. Right. I don't know if you recall Ernie Moniz from MIT was the energy secretary. Oh yeah. I was chatting with him one time and he goes, Oh, district energy back to the future. And uh, <laughs> so it is, it is kind of like this. Oh, when we kind of go back to where we were, which is a integration of heat and power or cool and power and heat, right. Mm-hmm. You know, these opportunities, they kind of reappear and, the other thing, in addition to carbon and environmental objectives, David, one of the things we're, we're really seeing is resilience. Yeah. You know, as you well know, the frequency and severity of extreme weather events, storms, hurricanes, etc., is rocking cities and campuses. It's a public safety as well as an economic and environmental. And, you know, one of the things about district energy is we actually have an outstanding track record for reliability. You know, some of our systems have been operating for 50, 60 years and literally have recorded like a couple of hours of unscheduled outage. Isn't there one in uh, Boise that's been around for, that was like the early 1900s, right? Or, or it- Yeah, I mean, it might, be, it might be Klamath Falls, Oregon, or yeah, Boise, Idaho, right? I, yeah, it's probably, I think it's a geothermal system. You know, our system in Minneapolis began operating in like 1972, uh, you know, the asset was owned by the gas company, then it was sold to an investor, and then it was IDS. And these things have changed hands, and there's really been a lot of growth. But when the investment banks look at these assets, they, you know, that's one of the tests. How reliable is it? Is there a renewal cost right. here? You know, what's the capital? And that system over 35 years literally had, you know, 35 years, like two hours of unscheduled outage. It wasn't <laughs> their problem. It was the gas supply was interrupted by a backhoe. You know, someone was, mm. you know, but the, the beauty of district energy is we don't rely on a single source. Most plants have multiple feeds of electric and sometimes multiple sources on, not always, but multiple sources, right? So 
when the price of gas gets too high, they can shift to something else. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of permutations, a lot of different categories of distribution. It's like ice cream. It's like way many flavors, high fat content, low fat content. But they're all underground, basically sheltered from the yeah. weather, which is the big which is the big thing. Yeah, most of the asset is, and you know, uh, I meant to talk about like Storm Uri, right? You recall that was a couple of winters ago, hit Texas. Oh yes, the systems that stayed online. Texas Medical Center, six hospitals, you know, bigger than the city of Houston. UT Austin, twenty million square feet stayed online. UT Austin, and they have District Energy is CHP, right? Gas fire generation and power and heat. And they maintained operations. In fact, the Texas Medical Center not only was supplying all the needs for their campus, that largest healthcare campus in the world, they were actually able to capture and truck water to some of the municipalities whose water systems were frozen and not operating. <laughs> so they were an area of refuge beyond, you know, really the capability of their own. It's not their own lifeboat, right? They were really a highly valued asset for the larger community. You know, obviously the main service provided by these things is heating and cooling. Yes. But as we discussed, there's also um, energy storage, mm-hmm. yeah. which helps with the grid. That's another service. There is resilience against against weather. That's kind of another service. Are there other... You know, when you're uh, pitching a district energy system to someone who, who's contemplating building one, are there other sort of services and benefits aside from the heating and cooling that you that you cite? Good question. Some of our systems create really a, a wonderful circular economy opportunity. In the case of St. Paul, District Energy St. Paul, they began operating um, 1988 and then added cooling. and uh, it, But they, they built a biomass CHP plant. And that, and it isn't, you know, it's literally recovering waste wood from the Twin Cities region that would otherwise go to landfill. It gets processed into fuel and displaces 250,000 tons of coal. So you get the double benefit. The carbon emissions are cut in half. Instead of going to landfill and essentially becoming a, you know, an environmental problem, it's now an economic opportunity for people to make a living converting waste wood into a, you know a low carbon you know green fuel so in university of missouri columbia corn stover right a byproduct of making corn is like these you know it's the stalks that's actually a fuel supply gets mixed in university of iowa there was a cereal the general mills cereal plant so it turns out when you crack an oat hull like a pistachio there's the, the, the part you eat, and then there's the whole yeah. shell. Well, that shell can actually be used as a fuel input in a power plant. And so interesting that happened at University of Iowa probably 25 years ago, and it enabled that cereal factory, instead of paying to dispense of that waste product, they actually got paid right. to provide it, right? So there's really a lot of, I think, interesting, innovative economic environmental opportunities that come from having a district energy system in your community. Um, so there's a lot of success stories out there. Uh, time prevents me from covering them all. And uh. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it relatively straightforward? I mean, I guess this will obviously depend system to system, but if you have source X and you want to switch it out for source Y, 
you already have all the infrastructure going to the houses and everything. Is it relatively straightforward to switch sources on these things once they're built? Or like how customized is the network to the source, if that makes sense? So all across Scandinavia, you know, houses are connected. Entire communities have district energy. They're often municipally owned, right? So the people that are using the energy are the shareholders, right? So it's a uh, in Sweden, in Denmark, often it's a nonprofit, like municipal enterprise. So it's a very different market drivers, et cetera, than our investor-owned you know, model here. But no, at Princeton University, I, I hate to you know, pump the tires on them, but they really are uh, tremendous. And Google them if you would. But they did a test because they use natural gas in their jet engine. They, so it's basically the, like the jet engine that would be on the wing of a fighter plane, at yeah. F-35, right? That's now stationary, and they use natural gas. They did a test burn 20 years ago with using biodiesel. Mm. And it turns out that the, the engine, the jet, liked biodiesel better. It burned cleaner, <laughs> you know, cooler, and it was happy. But, of course, the price of biodiesel is eight times or yes. more, right? So there are opportunities to kind of just switch. You know, it's not as simple as switching the fuel, like valving one and opening the other, although that that can and does happen, right? I, I don't mean to overly simplify it, but one of the big advantages of district energy is with the scale of serving 50, 100, 200 buildings, you can then integrate what are lower carbon or renewable technologies and you don't have to go all in. Like it doesn't have to be 100%, right? You can right. feather it in. And if you look at a city like Gutenberg in Sweden, 30 years ago, 80% of the fuel input was was fossil. Today, it's like 8%. And they've just been nudging it that way over time. Exactly. Exactly. Now, the markets are entirely different. There's a many car, there's carbon price driver. There's taxes. There's a whole different set of circumstances that really need you know, disclosure when you look at the difference between Denmark, Sweden, and the U.S. Yeah, yeah. But on a technology basis... It's not a technology chat. I mean, there it takes smart people. Don't get me wrong. And we the, we're gifted in district energy. Our industry, we have some really talented, dedicated people running our systems in cities and on campuses. Really, just remarkable. But people can and do switch out sources. Exactly. It it isn't necessary. I mean, you have to solve for the economics, the reliability, the right. efficiency. There's. It's really kind of a four level chessboard now, right? Relatedly, and you and you touched on this briefly, and this is something I wanted to get at. In the U.S., you know, we're talking about the increasing um, interplay between heat systems and electricity systems, which um, you know, from a physics point of view, is awesome, and from a carbon point of view, I think is awesome. But from a institutional point of view, it is problematic since we have you know, gas utilities, and then we have electric utilities, and they're not necessarily uh, eager <laughs> to, to play nicely with one another. So, so in a U.S. city, who owns this? Uh -huh. <laughs> is, it, is it the gas utility? You know, because that's sort of kind of related to their business. Can ele an electric utility own this? Is it co-owned? How does the how does it work with the U.S. utility system, which screws everything up uh, <laughs> some some way or another? <laughs> the answer is yes and yes. So um, the first eleven downtown district cooling systems built in cities in the U.S. were built by natural gas utilities (LDCs, local distribution companies). 
yeah. because they had all this summertime gas capacity available. It was really before you know the grid was uh, primarily natural gas driven. So the gas utility, re- they really were the initial, I would say, principal investors in the district cooling industry in North America. Since 1990, we've built like 60 systems in cities across North America. You know, I, I said they're rare in North America, but apparently that's just my abject ignorance. Apparently they're all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, depending on where you went to college, you probably lived in a dorm that was on district heat. I, I mean, I, I would make that bet. This is a classic invisible infrastructure here. No, it really is. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. You know, we're not wind turbines. We're not, you know, blue panels. Yeah, yeah. Not, not self-evident. Quietly, silently, effectively doing our work. The electric utility industry, I think they're kind of coming back around district energy. Now, currently, a lot of the downtown systems are actually owned by pension funds or investor groups and hmm. operated by very talented third-party uh, companies, Vicinity Energy, Cordia Energy, uh, Centrio, and then in Canada, N-Wave, uh, Corix. So there are people that own and operate systems in multiple cities, right? So there's been a kind of a scaling up. The model there, is that a energy as a service kind of thing where, where they own the infrastructure and they just sell the heat? Yeah, well, it's more like we will contract with you to provide the heating and cooling that you require. It's almost like leasing space in an office building. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're purchasing a share of the capacity and then you're going to pay for the metered consumption so there's really two components to the sort of the rate structure generally. There's a capacity and then a consumption of metered. And that's generally billed, you know, monthly. Oftentimes it's on a multi-year contract like a lease, you know, 10, mm. 20 years. Many of the district cooling systems when they were initially built were like the gas utilities built them. And then they were sometimes sold off, right, because there was huge value in selling them off. And then when private enterprise, you know, kind of came in to own them, the contracts, the the service agreements were in effect the the collateral to fund the capital, right? It's, it's, Mm. it's, uh, so I, I, you know, time probably prevents me from kind of getting into all the (laughs) perturbations, but to your question, many of the systems today are privately owned and operated. They own the pipes, they own the plant, they own the pipes, or they have the right of way. Most systems are integrated where the production plant and the networks are owned by the same people, right? Mm. It's rare where the pipes are owned by a third party or the municipality and then, you know, and then, you know, you're paying like right of way, et cetera. So in the, in the sixties and seventies, the gas utilities built like this first group of district cooling systems. And then in the nineties, right. When, uh, Montreal Protocol and you know CFC phase out was happening. The electric utilities like, wow, we should get in the district cooling business. So they were investors either as a principal or as a partner in district cooling systems, like the system in Chicago was a joint venture. Did any of them get rate based or like a rate payers on the? On um, the- generally not. Typically, they had their own you know balance sheet P and L. Oftentimes, it was equity downstream. But when I when I grew the business in Hartford. You know, I was a non-regulated subsidiary. The, the allowed rate of return for the gas utility was in the neighborhood of 10%, like 8 to eight to 11, right? If I, needed, if I needed the capital to expand the network, I had to provide the shareholders a 15 to 25% return on equity. Good God. And at the time, we, we doubled the size of the system in Hartford. We were producing almost 25% of the earnings per share with less than 10% of the revenue. Wild. So 
there's a lot to uncover here, unpack here. Let me just say that district energy is a highly valuable, highly valued asset and becoming more so. Do you see as these things get more popular and just in general, as heat in general becomes more important, prized and important, do you see heat sources like, for instance, data centers making siting decisions based on proximity to these things, based on their ability to sell heat to these things? Like, is this starting to be a, a force in where big industrial things locate? I think it's a factor and is sort of rising in the valuation. You know, it's gone from like maybe a, a rounding error to, you know, maybe top 10 tier, uh, like a uh, uh, road. We have seen a demonstrable growth in data centers, certainly in Northern Europe, right? And what's happened with the data center operators is they're realizing, I need to reject heat all the time. You know, these servers are making heat all the time. Yeah, well, typically the way is to site out in the middle of nowhere where exactly. renewable, where electricity is super cheap, so you can just run your coolers for super cheap. But this seems like, this seems better to use the heat, right? Yeah, it turns out, you know, there's actually some uh, some margin in it, right? Instead of mm. instead of paying to dump it, right, or exhaust it, right. now you can actually, you know, have a value stream. Now, I wouldn't say that it's a prime driver. It, it may be the case where a data center would have been like, you know, 30 miles away is now closer to a load right. center, right? Right. And then the heat can be harvested on an economic basis. Data center heat, industrial heat, as you mentioned earlier, sewage, you know, sewage heat. Turns out, man, there's a lot of heat uh, pumping underground. And yeah. you think about, you take a shower in the morning, then you run your dishwasher, and then, the, you know, your washing machine, etc. You're putting a lot of BTUs into the waste stream. Yeah. At low, you know, this is low value, but it with a heat pump, you can up that the value of that heat three, four, five, six yes. to one. And you know what? Municipalities, especially water systems, they're always looking for a new revenue stream. It, it really is a symbiotic opportunity. Yeah, this is uh, kind of what I got into. I, I've done a couple of pods on industrial heat storage, heat, yes, heat batteries. I saw that. Yeah, yeah and, and it's just, um, I don't know quite what the distinction is. It's technological, but not technological in the way we're accustomed to in the 21st century. When, when we think technology, we just think chips and obscure stuff going on that we, it is opaque to us that we can't understand. It's like a black box magic. This is like an earlier form of technology where it's very tangible. It's very physical. It's very like engineering based. Like there's nothing, there's nothing conceptually here that that's hard to understand, right? It's just moving the pieces around to make them work better. It's delightful in a way I have not quite been able to, to capture. It's like an older form of engineering. <laughs> I mean, we'd, love, we'd all like to think it's simple and, and straightforward. And generally it is. But, um, you know, let's say I'm in an elevator and someone says, so what do you do? And I, you know, take the 20 floors to tell them. <laughs> Most people go, oh, man, that makes sense. Don't dump the heat in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Use it for cities, right? Exactly. Why aren't we doing that, right? So that's generally the reaction. I get. It's like, wow, that's common sense. Don't waste it. Right? Like where and, and you, the more you start thinking about it, you're like, well, where is the heat? And you like start looking around. You're like, oh, yeah. like it's everywhere. It's all over the place. How can I get it from there to there? How can I get yeah. it from there to there? It's it's very clever. Okay, we're running out of time, but I want to get briefly to the policy question. So, first is is there stuff in the IRA for district energy, or are there existing subsidies or supports in U.S. policy for district? energy. 
there are some. It's not a straight line. There isn't a call out for district energy or CHP. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a number of initiatives where our members can, you know, participate and compete and win and win funding. Often it's driven at the congressional district level right now. You know, it's Mm -hmm. sort of, well, here's a project. There's a public entity. It's an infrastructure investment. So it requires sort of a packaging and explanation, but that is happening. I, I would also say that district energy has survived and thrived without relying on, you know, incentive, right. Mm -hmm. Or tax policy or credits. Now, obviously RA, the fungible, the transferable tax credit, that's going to create opportunity where, you know, like a public institution, a non-tax requiring entity previously would have had to partner with a third party, you know, investor with a tax appetite. Right. And that wasn't always a kindred spirit, wasn't always. So re-revising that will create even more opportunity for, you know, funding opportunities for infrastructure investments, which these tend to be. So I'm not really giving a clear answer other than, yes, there are some, but it's not a clearly delineated. Indirect, uh, you might say. Kind of set aside, yeah. Well, then final question, are there obvious policy reforms that would help district energy? And, and, and at what level are those? Is this mostly going to be a municipal thing mm. or is this where states can help or is there some national policy that could help? If, they, if you were pulling a policy lever, where would you look for the lever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all three layers. At a federal level, I mean, if, uh, if there were a, a, you know, a carbon tax, not that I'm a proponent of, of tax, but if there were a carbon tax <laughs> that really did, you know, I think appropriately value emissions, that would really then unleash investment in efficiency, et cetera. You know, I mean, that would unleash, oh, my God, we can get there faster with district energy at scale, doing this right. 20 megawatts at a time or, or more. At a state level, we are seeing, you know, some states, Washington, New York, and others, that, you know, like New York has uh, the climate law. And at a local level, right, in municipal New York City, local law 97, which is requiring large building owners to itemize their carbon emissions, right, et cetera. Now, you may know, recently they provided a two-year reprieve on on the compliance with Local Law 97 because the the carrot and stick, the stick was coming out next year to impose fines on on buildings that weren't in compliance. And some buildings, not for lack of trying, really were in a, you know, like a a rat in a maze. Like, they they couldn't solve to get to low carbon, right? It wasn't so... Again, I'm not advocating a carbon tax, but if the right to emit had so many of our members, right, when they're doing an evaluation on a, a utility plan or a master plan or you know a, a renewal, they have a shadow price for carbon. Mm. You know, but it's not necessarily a revenue stream that's going to you know amortize the debt, but it is something to consider because it you know it's I don't know if it's likely. I've been at this for 45 years. You know, we, we've had starts and stops. Um, the clean power <laughs> plan, you know, I thought was a, a move in the right direction, right? It kind of said, states do this, but, you know, we all got to get on this. You know, that came and went, right? Um, so the uncertainty of policy immediacy, I think, can be both a crutch and an advantage. Um, <laughs> and I think our industry, we've managed to make sense based on efficiency, resilience, and uh, economies of scale. 
not to say that we wouldn't you know benefit from uh, you know more informed policy like is in place with our colleagues in in the EU right certainly in Scandinavia but I'm not here to advocate that a you know a hundred forty dollar carbon price is the is the answer today. I'll advocate for that on your on your on your behalf if you want <laughs> nice if, if someone if someone here needs to advocate for that I'll I'll, t- I'll take that bullet. I mean some of it is about subsidies and policy help but a lot of it and this is like. You know, this is a theme I come back to again and again and again and again, which is just this is another area of clean energy that involves more planning and spending up front for huge savings over time. You you run into that situation over and over and over again, especially in the U.S., like planning is not our – our forte, not really something we're great at doing. So a lot of it is just about like, let's sit down together and think through this thing in advance and, and you know, come up with a plan. Like that's, I don't know if it's policy that helps that happen. It's just a, a, a more of a culture of planning. It seems almost we need. Well, there, I mean, there's the challenge of weighted average cost of capital, return on private capital, right? There's that, those are real. Where we are seeing, I think, uh, you know, an acceleration of investment is on our college campuses, because as you might recognize, you know, they have an investment horizon. You know, Cornell has been in the same location right. like, for you know, 150 years. Princeton, 300 years. It'll be yeah. 300 years soon. So they have an assurance of not only, you know, uh, provision, but supply and use, et cetera. Right. So you can have a six year return on investment and anticipate 20 years of benefit. Right? right, And that's actually the case with the Cornell Deep Lake Water Cooling. Turns out when they stroked the $56 million putt in 1990, <laughs> it's actually worked out better than they predicted economically, better environmentally. And today they're able to add load with a very low marginal cost. And so, yeah. you know, it isn't as simple as if you build it, they will come. But we are seeing where... You know, the risk appetite, I think private enterprise in the U.S. has the double burden of shareholder intensity next quarter, next month, next day. Yes. Right. Versus what's beneficial for employment, growth, labor continuity. The time horizon of capital. I come back to this again and again and again. we got so much fast, impatient capital and so much of what we want to do requires slow, patient capital. Yes. And, you know, we're seeing that district energy renewals are really having significant economic value. You know, then it also comes back to, well, how many customers, what is the predictable use of that asset over this life, right? And right. so that gets, you have to do some sensitivities around that. Well, what, you know, what, what should we, what can we bank on? What can we predict? Right. What can we expect? But I, I think the, the our industry is actually enjoying a renewed recognition, uh, really a, a I'd, I'd say an appreciation. I, I don't want to call it a renaissance because we've always been there and very good at it. <laughs> but I, I do feel like we're becoming the cool kids table in the high school cafeteria. <laughs> at last. Leave it there. <laughs> Back to the future. All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much. I've been, welcome, I've been uh, fascinated by district energy for many years. It's great to really dig through it with you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, really uh, keep up the good work. Uh, Really applaud all the work you're doing to help people understand and, and get their heads around all these opportunities and challenges. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.